Hi, uh, Duncan Green here, um, bringing you the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Feeling a bit far gone today because uh, I foolishly went running before breakfast and now I'm completely exhausted. Um, but never mind, I will try and struggle through the update. Um, it's also a bit broken this the, the, this few weeks because both because of holidays and also because of uh, all these UN training sessions. So I'm off to Senegal next week. Very nice. Um, and so I probably won't do an update next week. I'll do one the following one. Uh, so we've got 25 UN and uh, INGO bosses to talk about influencing uh, next week, which should be really interesting. The first two went really well. So it's good, good fun, this program. Anyway, back to the blogs. Um, I've got a couple of links I liked uh, spread out over the last two weeks, which was interrupted by the Jubilee holiday. So uh, I missed out on a few posts. Uh, first links I liked, just one of the things was um, the Australian elections, just how excited um, my Australian friends are about Penny Wong, their new foreign aid minister. So uh, we're, they are hoping that there's going to be a big new reboot of Australia's role as a, as a uh, thinker and leader on aid. Uh, so we'll see how that pans out. Second post, um, this is going to be quite a long uh, podcast, this one, because I don't think I'm getting through six or seven posts, um, is by the uh, is by Natalie Lati from the International Institute for Environment and Development called Promoting Anti-Racist Narratives in Development Sector Research. Storytelling in the aid and development sectors has for many years been criticised for perpetuating racial stereotypes and bias. In the main, this critique has focused on public affairs content from big brand charities, with less time spent considering whether storytelling in knowledge production organisations drives the same racialist narratives. So, yeah, the focus has been on the, 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 the ads for fundraising, which do poverty porn and all the rest of it. IIED, uh, Natalie's organisation, recently concluded an internal review that asked ourselves an uncomfortable question. Are we perpetuating racism? in the narratives that drive our own knowledge production. First, we developed a narrative analysis framework designed specifically to assess four pieces of our own content against six dimensions of racism. Colorblindness, white gaze, Eurocentrism, neutrality, saviorism, and exclusion. That's quite a list. These dimensions were drawn from a review we commissioned of academic work from leading Global South and African and Asian diaspora scholars and activists summarising the racism already observed as being present in aid and development storytelling. Then we worked in small groups to apply the framework to a blog post, a short video, a briefing paper and a segment of our organisational strategy. We aimed to start critical conversations about what we found, how that felt and what change we were going to make. And the insights from this review process are available to read in our new report, Discomfort to Discovery. Exploring Racism and Anti-Racism in Development Narratives, and there's a link on the blog. So here she, she summarises some thoughts on what change could look like. First, seeing saviourist storytelling as an NGO issue. Saviourism in aid and development storytelling is deemed problematic because it positions white people as rescuers of black people and people of colour. Thus, rescuing is often seen as saving lives and livelihoods. But it can also be involved when knowledge derived from majority white Western sources is positioned as preeminent and the optimal way of tackling development challenges. The challenge inherent in saviourist storytelling, whether in knowledge leadership or frontline programmes, 
is that it fuels a broader set of practices and processes in development that offer white people a reinforced sense of power and privilege while doing the opposite for black people and people of colour. Second, leaving racial injustice out of the research and development context. Most of the stories we tell through development research consistently mask and by default deny the race-based oppression, injustice and exploitation that underpin the inequality issues we write about. This lack of voice on racial oppression and injustice, past and present, creates narratives that lack explanations about how and why economic patterns of wealth and poverty correlate so closely with the experience of people living in majority white and black countries, respectively. Third, a position influenced by the white gaze. The white gaze in development, a term coined by Liberian academic and activist Rob Tel Paley, is a way of often unconsciously looking at the world and finding white Western culture, its intellectual achievements and ways of organising society as the norm that other cultures ought to aspire to, while finding cultures of black people and people of colour as inherently lacking. Both the white gaze and Eurocentrism, which means centering Western concepts and creating no room for other perspectives to be valued, influence our philosophical and political positions when we create content. Fourth, exclusion through author authorship and selective storytelling. The lack of prominent black researchers and researchers of colour creating knowledge products in the international development field is a visible challenge. Also, the topics that rise to the top of research agendas and donor-driven approaches to sharing research insights can undermine the telling of stories about development done solely by or under the leadership of black people and people of colour, leaving their stories marginalised or untold. So, what are the opportunities for doing things differently? Acknowledging that to change big things you need to be able to ch first change small things is a good start. This could mean starting to talk more openly about racism in storytelling, including in research. Creating knowledge products that speak to issues that link racism and development is also crucial. For example, exploring the lasting impact colonisation has had on global South economies and governance, or the injustice of post-colonial debt relief. More broadly, changing the way we present majority white organisations can be powerful too. We can aim to continually create opportunities for the black people and people of colour in our organisations to define themselves and increase the visibility of their contribution to development research. Great stuff. Then I had another link I liked, and this is one of my favourite authors. I'll just pick out, there are lots of links, but I'll pick out some, something from Branko Milanovic, who's a Serbian economist who is just a, a phenomenal thinker, I think. And he had a very sort of big, big, big think piece on what's going on with Russia. And he says that, you know, he, he refers back to a paper I think he wrote about 25 years ago, saying that leaders uh, tend to uh, have pursue sovereignty and income in their country. So either they want more independence for their country to be free from, you know, influence from outside, or they want greater uh, income for their people. And often there's a trade-off between the two. And his argument is that Russia, since the uh, fall of communism, has tried to boost income and pretty much failed. And that what if we think that what Putin is doing now is actually trying to shift from income to sovereignty? And I'll just read one paragraph, but the piece is really interesting. Such increase in sovereignty would lead to lower income. But the problem is neither would the break with Europe, if announced by the leaders, nor lower income, be welcomed by the population. Russian government cannot thus on its own begin to create a new Iron Curtain. But what if the Iron Curtain were built by the West against Russia 
as a punishment for something that, from the Russian point of view, could be considered an entirely justified policy. So that's really quite interesting. He's, he's saying that the, if the war on Ukraine is seen by most Russians as justified, which opinion polls seem to suggest it is at the moment, although that may change, then maybe the West is building an iron curtain around Russia with sanctions and all the rest of it, which will help Putin create, yeah, achieve sovereignty at the expense of income, when doing it off his own bat would be very unpopular. Interesting. So it's that external enemy point. And then the rest of the uh, week was uh, uh, some reposts of some very good uh, updates, quite quite geeky updates on this whole question of adaptive management, thinking, working politically, com working in complex systems, which I write about a lot on the blog. So the first one was from Sir Investor Haldrup from UNDP's Strategic Innovation Unit, wrestling with the issue of measurement and learning. Two years ago, we launched a series of strategic investments focused on helping UNDP and our partners figure out how to better understand and tackle complex systems challenges. We call these investments deep demonstrations as they are meant to show to both UNDP and our partners that it is possible to do development differently when facing complex problems and high levels of uncertainty. In these demonstrations, we have supported colleagues in countries across the world to apply systems thinking and portfolio approaches to challenges such as the green transition and the future of work. In this process, we have learned that using systems and portfolio approaches, which means looking at all your projects and funding, not just project by project, requires very different ways of doing monitoring, evaluation and results measurement. This is rooted in the realization that we cannot hope to transform complex systems through business as usual approaches founded on linear project-based modes of planning, management and evaluation. I think at least four issues are worth noting on this question of monitoring and evaluation. First, need to learn and adapt. Because we don't know upfront how to best help solve complex problems, such as transitioning our economy to a circular model, we need to continuously learn and adapt what we do based on learning. Second, adopt longer time horizons. We need to better deal with the fact that it takes a long time for substantive change to materialise and that we do not necessarily know up front what such change will look like. This makes it difficult to know if we are on track and whether we should do anything differently. Third, capture impact in the aggregate. We cannot evaluate individual interventions in isolation because we usually tackle systems challenges through portfolios of interconnected interventions. And fourth, focus on contribution over attribution. We should focus on capturing our contribution to bigger change processes rather than seek to directly attribute change to our work. These are big different these are big shifts in the way people think about monitoring evaluation. Over the past 12 months I've spoken with many people and organizations across the world who are also trying to tackle or measure complex systems challenges. And it turns out that most of them are grappling with these same challenges and Sorin provides a good big long list of what people are up to. Despite encouraging progress within and beyond UNDP, our experience over the past two years has made us painfully aware that our current processes, incentives and ways of working go against the grain of a stronger process on systems, learning and adaptation. We hear this again and again from colleagues in countries such as Bolivia, Ghana, Palestine and Serbia who are leading systems and portfolio focused work in our deep demonstrations. For instance, 
M&A is often seen primarily as an accountability function about compliance and reporting to donors, rather than also being about generating timely and useful learning. Similarly, our project management systems and procedures tend to be rigid and lock in program rather than make it flexible. Whoa, yes, yes, yes. From an Oxfam point of view, true that. Furthermore, structural and organisational incentives in UDP and in other organisations discourage learning and higher level results measurement in the aggregate across projects in SA, a UNDP country office, because financing and M&E resourcing is usually project based. Each project has a separate donor or source of funding. This tends to lead to activity and output level reporting within projects, rather than a view on how combinations of projects collectively contribute to change. So what they're doing, UNDP has set up an M&E sandbox, which I presume is a sand pit in English, in England, English, England, English, to nurture and learn from innovative M&E efforts that we hope can help address these challenges. It's a global initiative open for everyone interested in pushing the boundaries on M&E, and it's looking for active allies, collaborators and partners. There's going to be a series of events to kick it off, and Soren kindly puts his email in the blog to say, if you want to get involved, get in touch. And then the, the other, the next two posts was I divided a big long post on Medium from Tom Aston, who's a consultant on thinking, working politically, adaptive management, all this kind of thing, because um, I thought it was a really useful uh, overview on remaking the case for adaptive management. So Tom thinks we might be at a critical juncture in the conversation on adaptive management. We've had the crashing to earth of inflated expectations in recent misanthropic reflections. Well, I looked at the link on that and it's me. I was very put out because I'm not at all misanthropic. I'm merely sceptical, which is not the same thing at all, Tom. But anyway, apparently I'm a misanthrope, which is maybe true on some deeper level. Anyway, we've had the crashing to earth of inflated expectations alongside a fragile institutionalization of adaptive management in donor agencies, NGOs and private sector organisations. However, I'd argue that we've reached the point where adaptive management has passed the proof of concept stage. In my view, and this is Tom's view, not my view, uh, I'm, in, to give, I'm talking in his voice, adaptive management and thinking and working politically, TWP, have taken off to the degree that they have not, that they have not because of the evidence base to support it, but due to champions within donor agencies and implementing organisations who get it intuitively, who have the courage and risk appetite to experiment and the reflexivity to learn. In the case of DFID uh, FCDO, it's relatively easy to identify and name some of these champions, such as P. Vowles, Richard Butterworth, Chris Pycroft, Sam Waldock, who are still on the inside, and then Graham Teske, Wilf Wamba, Tom Wingfield, Laura Len Piron, and Heather Marquette, who are now on the outside, and the late, great Sue Unsworth. And there's a potted history of the story in a, in a paper called Is DFID Getting Real About Politics? It's noteworthy that these champions also wrote up quite a lot of what they thought. That is, they weren't and aren't just responding to an agenda, but also setting one. And there's lots of links to some of the really good papers that these people have written. While change is obviously institutional, it's, uh, it's also individual, and it's hard to get around the vital role of individual champions inside organisations. But donor champions further need some evidence to back up their case. It will likely be the same in other donor agencies where there might be innovators and or early adopters who might have the right adaptive mindset, but they can't make the case on their own to their peers. 
as the donor environment for adaptive programming has worsened, there's also been an increasing exodus of FCDO staff. My concern is that following the peak of inflated expectations, we might not have enough champions to muddle through the recent trough of disillusionment. He's referring there to the hype cycle, which I use a lot on the blog, of how new ideas go through this peak of inflated expectations and then suddenly uh, everybody starts criticizing it and get through a trough and then you arrive at a sort of stable plateau where the bits that are useful are incorporated into the wider agenda. <clears throat> I take the peak of inflated expectations to be 2016 and he looks at the ODI database and it peaks in terms of the number of papers you know, about this in 2016. Um, we may still be on the back foot, given challenges in the wider political context, at least in the UK, but there is at least some evidence for hope in the slow accumulation of the evidence base, which demonstrates that adaptive programming can be effective and there is plenty of real world usage. We know that evidence alone can't make a big difference to policy making processes, but it can help to convince some people who believe in the value of evidence in the first place. Um, and he quotes an author who favours four steps of strengthening evidence-informed adaptive management. Establish the need for evidence in adaptive management. Consider the appropriate types and levels of evidence. Assess the robustness of that evidence. And ensure the basis of adaptive management decision-making is sound. And he has a little um, sideswipe at uh, people who still think that the only proper kind of evidence is randomised control trials saying that actually they do not work, especially for adaptive programming. Um, and he also wants to dispel the best practice myth. Adaptive management isn't supposed to solve all the world's problems in the same way everywhere. Quite the contrary, we're talking about best fit programming according to local context. And then he provides a really useful set of links. So he's got an annotated bibliography on the evidence base. He's got his top five papers on making a convincing case for adaptive programming. He directs us to a, a really useful ODI database on Zotero with 112 documents over the last 15 years on adaptive management, uh, some reviews. And he, said, he concludes, I think it's fair to say that adaptive management is becoming a new orthodoxy for large international development organizations, or at least in the creative corners of their programming. Important distinction. But of course, there's much more that can be done. We could do with a state of evidence study on adaptive programming, a synthesis of syntheses. It would also be interesting to develop cases of where adaptive approaches may have averted failure and even to estimate the potential savings to make a value for money argument for or against adaptive programming. We could benefit from some more self-critical accounts of when, where and why adaptive programs have failed, taking a bit of our own medicine about the importance of learning from failure. And it might also be helpful to have a comparative analysis of the uptake of adaptive management in donor agencies, um, and, uh, yeah, US, UK, Australia. And we can certainly, and this is a very powerful point, we can certainly make a far clearer link to the localization agenda. We also have done this long ago. It's pretty embarrassing that so little has been done. Absolutely on that one. You've got these parallel discussions where one is saying, for our programs to be more effective, we have to think and work politically. Oh, and by the way, local people are the best place to actually understand this local politics that we need to stick at the center of our programming. And then really quite separate discussion saying, it's just not right that so little money is going to local 
organizations, local partners, local decision makers, and it's still dominated by northern NGOs and northern aid agencies. We really should be in the same room on that on that conversation. And on that very sensible note from Tom Aston, have a great weekend and I'll talk probably in a fortnight. Bye everybody.